Good morning, church. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online and those of you that are at the Fredericksburg campus. And of course, those of you that are in the house at Stafford as well. Before we dig in, we got a couple of business items to take care of. You may have noticed when you walked in to the auditorium and those four entrances, there was a table of communion supplies. But you may have been so busy or or doing things you may not have noticed there was a table of communion supplies. Immediately following the sermon today, we will be taking communion to remember what God has done for us. And I want you to be able to participate. So if you do not have your supplies, you can kind of raise your hand or stand up, wave. Make sure you get their attention. I promise you will not offend me. You can tune me out for a couple minutes. I taught high school English for the better part of a decade. You will not hurt my feelings. Uh, you can imagine some of the things that get seen. Uh, Timmy shoots a paper wad from across the room. Uh, it's a 10-point shot, I guess. Ball goes in the waste paper basket, and you know what the entire class does at that point. Oh! At which point, I might as well not have taught the last 17 minutes because nobody's listening to anything I have to say because the best thing that's going to happen in that class has already happened. So please don't miss out because you think you will offend me. Wave your hand, stand up, stand on your chair, we're good. Uh, And while you guys are doing that, I wanna remind you guys that also immediately following the service, our prayer team will be right up here. Those fine men and women would love to pray with you. Pray about something you're going through, praise with you, answer any questions you may have about the sermon. If you're new here or haven't been here for a long time, that is a great first yet bold step to step up and kind of figure out where you fit into this thing that we call the Mount family. Now with all of that business out of the way, we're gonna pray before we dig into Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter two, and 2 Corinthians chapter five. So let's pray it up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that we can know you, and I ask that you show us the real you. I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see you as you are, and not as we wish you were, or as we thought you were. We ask that we're motivated by the goodness that is you to be transformed and redeemed by your great love and that with our hands and feet, we take a message of hope to a dying world. We ask these things in your son's name, amen. All right, so the meat of our passage is gonna come from Matthew chapter two today, but before we get there, I got to kind of lay some groundwork because we run the danger of you hearing something that I do not intend to say. When we walk through Matthew chapter two, there's the danger that you're going to hear that I want you to do more, that you're not doing enough, that I'm shaming you into obedience or I'm shaming you into more action. And I want to assure you that is not the case. In fact, Jesus says the exact opposite, right? He says you don't have to carry heavy burdens because he came to do the heavy lifting. Uh, He was widely recognized in his time as a rabbi, and I won't walk you through the different schools or how one's recognized as a rabbi, but suffice it to say, rabbis had followers, or what we would call disciples. And those disciples, after they had gone through the things they needed to go through, would present themselves to the rabbi, and the rabbi would either take them on or not take them on, but each disciple would have to pledge, yes, I will take your yoke. And what they were saying is, rabbi, I will teach other people your interpretation of scripture. And some of the rabbis had very heavy yokes. 
They would take a command like obey the Sabbath and keep it holy, and they would put hundreds of other rules on top of that command so that you didn't accidentally not keep the Sabbath, right? So you would have to have all these other rules memorized in order to not break the one rule, perhaps accidentally, and Jesus was never a big fan of this. He spoke out on this regularly, and he spoke out on this harshly at times. And with this in mind, we're going to pick up Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take on my interpretation of scripture, which as Jesus Christ is going to be the correct interpretation of scripture, by the way. He says, take it on, because this interpretation will be rest for your weary souls. This interpretation will refresh you. So as we walk through the next scripture, let's not have the focus be on us. Let's have the focal point be where it is to be on Jesus Christ. He came to do the heavy lifting. He's the savior. So remember, he is our rabbi. We take on his yoke or his interpretation of scripture and he says that it is lighter and easier to do so. So with that established, we're gonna talk about these magi, sometimes known as wise men. And we're gonna start in Matthew chapter two, verse one where Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. These Magi were very educated and very well versed in science and astrology and history. They had seen a star that they recognized as the king of the Jews star, and they thought this was a very significant event. So significant that they were going to leave their homes and travel so that they could witness and be a part of this story and witness history in the making. He continues, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. You can understand why the sitting king is disturbed when he hears a new king has been born and he is not the father of said new king. So you can understand why the king might not be a big fan of this news. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's interest is piqued. He obviously respects these visitors because he moves immediately on this information. He doesn't negotiate with them and say, nah, there's no king born. My wife, none of my wives gave birth. He doesn't negotiate and say, ah, no new king is coming. He immediately moves. He says, tell me where the king of the Jews, tell me where the Messiah is going to be born. He discerns the information and he enacts a plan to find the new king. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. As you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He says, all right, you Magi, you do the hard work. You go out of this sea of villages and you find the king of the Jews. Then you come back to me 
and I will go worship him as well. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place that the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They had traveled a long distance and were now about to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They were about to see the most pivotal king in human history. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. I don't want to just gloss over that. These are grown adults looking at a child, putting themselves on the ground, saying, you are greater than we. We are your servants, and we will protect you, and we will do what you ask us to do. We submit our lives to you. Huge moment about what they believe is the importance of this child's birth. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They're warned in a dream not to return, not afraid of King Herod, loving the baby Jesus. They go another route and they protect this moment in history. And that's the last we hear of the Magi. That's it. It's a brief introduction, but an introduction that Matthew decided was so important that it needed to be included in his gospel in the Christmas story. And when we separate what we don't know about the Magi from what we do know, it becomes clear why this was included. A lot of things we think we know about these guys, we don't actually know. The first of which being how many there actually were. I just read you 12 verses, and at no point did it say there were three wise men or three magi. We assume there were three because there are three gifts listed. But this may or may not be the case. There could have been as few as two. Could have been an entire entourage. But we have no idea. We also don't know where they came from. We know they came from the east. We know they traveled a long distance. But we have no idea where they actually left from. We also don't know when they came. How old was Jesus when they got there? He was probably between about six months and two years. But we can only discern that from other things that go on surrounding the story. We also don't actually know where they visited. Because Jesus is born in a manger, but they visit him in a house. And so we don't know how much time has passed. Are they in Bethlehem? That's what Herod seems to believe and sends them. But they don't follow Herod. They follow the star. They could have been in Bethlehem. They could have been in Nazareth. They could have been wherever the star was. So we don't know a lot about these guys. But what we do know is far more significant than what we don't know. We do know that they traveled a great distance from the east to worship the king of the Jews. We also know that they were guided by a star. And I put that in there just to kind of show there's something miraculous here. There's something going on that's out of the normal. They didn't leave because they saw a normal sky. They left because they saw a star. And that star signified something important. And they responded to that importance with travel. They brought gifts. 
And I have no desire to say anything controversial that will get you to email me today. But they brought really good gifts. Right? You want gold under your Christmas tree? Yeah, me too. They brought really good gifts. You don't get someone the same thing for St. Patrick's Day that you do on their wedding day. The moment is bigger, so you bring a better gift. And I hate to say this one, but I'm going to anyway. You didn't get your kids' teachers the same gift that you got your spouse. You didn't. Because the relationship is more intimate. You were able to get your spouse something more personal and probably more expensive, which is wise because your spouse is going to be there long after your kids leave that teacher's classroom. So the gifts, they bring them. And we put all of these things that we do know together and we arrive at the conclusion that the Magi thought Jesus' birth was a very big deal. You don't travel a great distance without a great reason. You don't give away these expensive things. Then the biggest one of all is you don't bow down and submit to someone. You don't put yourself on the ground and say, I serve you, you're greater than me, if you don't think that is super important. And we can tell that they knew that this was a huge moment in human history by their actions. Because our beliefs will always be revealed by our actions. You can tell me you think school is important, but if you blow off your homework and show up late every day, you're telling me something very different with your hands and your feet. You can tell me you put God first in your life. In fact, that's in like 90% of the social media bios on the internet. I love God or God first. But does your life reveal that truth as your mouth does? We can confidently say that the Magi thought Jesus' birth was exceptionally important. Can we confidently say that you and I think the same? Do our actions reveal that we find Jesus entering human history to be exceptionally important? Our faith in Jesus Christ was always meant to be lived out in our actions and our attitudes. James, uh, Jesus' brother James challenges his audience when he says, you show me your faith without works. The obvious implication being you cannot, but I will show you my belief by what I do. Because belief always drives action. And this is the part where you hear me telling you you've got to do more. This is the part where I, you hear me saying you're not doing enough. Be more like the Magi. They traveled great distance on horseback through uh, wilderness, probably not fun. They brought Jesus really expensive things. Be more like them. And I do want us to be more like them, but not in that way. When we focus on actions... We focus on us, and this life that we live was never meant to be focused on us. 
when we focus on our actions, we turn this into a self-help seminar or being a better version of who we are. But Christianity is not a path to a better you. Christianity is not a self-help seminar. The Magi understood who he is and our focus must also be on who he is because who he is motivates us to live a life of worship. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter five, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and was raised again. For Christ's love compels us. We have an accurate view of the living God and that accurate view redefines our attitudes and our attitudes drive our actions. The awesomeness of Jesus Christ will always be the motivation behind our actions. You cannot fake it forever. The fundamental truth behind every reality show is what is in you is going to come out. And when it comes out, our cameras will be there to catch it. You cannot fake it forever. You cannot white knuckle it and discipline and be good and make sure you tell fewer lies and make sure you tell fewer curse words forever. And that's never what Christianity was meant to be. Christianity is not a means to an end. Christianity is not where you and I map out our perfect lives, where we're gonna go to college, who we're gonna marry, how many kids we're gonna have, what we're gonna do as an occupation, where we're gonna live. Christianity is never us saying, hey, this is my perfect life, then adding Jesus to it and saying, Jesus, bless me as I go. Bless me, make all my dreams come true. If that's your version of Christianity, you're not gonna be here very long. Because the first time God calls you to travel a great distance, you're gonna say, that's not in my plan. The first time he asks you to give something that you're uncomfortable giving, you're gonna say, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this. Jesus, you were supposed to make all of my dreams come true. This is why we leave the faith. Because we think that either we are more or less pleasing to God by what we do, or we think he exists to serve us. We call that Christianity, and when neither thing works out for us, we're gone. So if Christianity isn't going to make me a better version of myself, and if Christianity isn't going to improve my life, why am I here? I'm glad you asked. What can the church and what can scripture deliver that nothing else can? The church and scripture can deliver an accurate portrayal of who the Son of God is. And that will be the motivation that keeps you tethered to a faith. A lot of us have a theoretical faith, a faith that exists in our minds, a faith that we've added to our lives, and it's a part. It's, it's a, a version of what we could look like. But the theoretical faith is unsatisfying and weak. A practical faith 
a faith that moves out of our hands and feet is always driven by the accurate idea of who God is. We are motivated by his power. We are motivated by his awesomeness. We are motivated by his love. We are motivated by his humility that all powerful God would leave perfect heaven at no benefit to him, at great benefit to us, at great cost to him, come down, not be born as a prince, be born and laid in a major, ultimately going to a wrongful execution where he would be murdered and buried and raised again that we can know him, that even the people that would reject him could know him and we will be with him for eternity. Do you know how much you have to love someone to want to be with them for eternity? This is the love that he has for us. And this is the motivation that drives our actions. This is what defines us. Paul says it like this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. The fundamental truth of what it means to know God is you are now a new creation, not a version of yourself that sins a little bit less. You are a fundamentally new creation changed by receiving the Holy Spirit from a living God. You went from his enemy to his child. And with it, everything changes. We no longer regard this Jesus, this world from a worldly perspective. We now regard it from his perspective because we see through his eyes, we see through his values as he has fundamentally changed who we are. Jesus Christ did not come to put more on your plate. He came to change the way that we see the plate. He came to invite us into a life of worship where now every interaction, every task has the opportunity to preach a gospel. Every test you take, every paper you file, every email you send now can be an act of worship because you have been fundamentally changed to a child of the living king. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Our new identity has multiple parts, but two of them are listed here. The first part is that our wrongs and our past and what we've done against God is no longer held against us. Why, when Jesus met people who were considered sinful and people who were, committed, uh, who were considered shameful, why did they not withdraw from him? Why were they excited to see Jesus? Why did they seek to eat with him? Because as the Messiah, he didn't remind them of what they had done wrong. He reminded them of what he was there to do, which was not to hold their wrong against them, to give them a new life, to give them a fresh start. I wonder, church, if we exemplify that aspect of Jesus. Because it seems to me we're really, really good at pointing out what people do wrong. They shouldn't live that lifestyle. 
they shouldn't be doing that. There's a reason when people go through certain things, they withdraw from the church. There's a reason that people are afraid to walk through those doors, but we're not afraid to walk in Jesus' presence because we're so focused on what we do and we're so focused on what it's good to do and we're so focused on these pseudo-holy checklists that we forget who he is and who we are. Keeping a rigid morality will never move a theoretical faith to a practical faith because it's always focused on us and not focused where it should be on him, the goodness that is Jesus Christ. He wraps up this passage and says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I were once a people without hope, but because God left heaven and was born, we now have hope. We were once a people without purpose, but because now we are fundamentally changed, we have the purpose of partnering with God in the ministry of reconciliation. We have a part in his plan to put right what went wrong with his creation. You can never say, I don't have a purpose. You can never say, my life doesn't matter. Because part of your fundamental identity is that you are taking a risen savior to a fallen world. But a faith that is focused on what we do and not who he is will never motivate us enough to do that. The Magi traveled a great distance. They brought expensive things and they bowed because they recognized that this new king was important. They didn't do it out of a sense of obligation. They didn't do it because they thought people would look at them and revere them for their piety. They did it because Jesus Christ is the greatest good that's ever existed. They did it because a humble God chases his creation to the ends of the earth, even backwater Palestine. They had a really big view of a really great God and it compelled them to live a life defined by worship. What we need isn't more to-dos. What you and I need is to cry out to the God in heaven and say, give me an accurate picture of who you are. Give me a taste of your goodness. Leave me in awe of your power. Give me a sense of your humility that I may be moved and motivated to live a life that worships you. This is real and practical faith. A faith where your desires are transformed because you know the one true God and are not faking it in what will eventually run out and you will leave, but an actual knowledge of who God is and what he's done and why that is important. 
Seeing Jesus as the greatest good that has ever existed moves us from a theoretical, unsatisfying faith to a practical faith and a life of love for what he's done for us. Now in his final meal with his disciples, he instituted a way to keep this truth on the forefront of our minds. As we get about our days and there's bills to pay and there's things to do, that can often slip to the back. So at the final dinner, Jesus says, hey, this is what you will do to remember me. He broke some bread and he gave it to them as a symbol of the body. He poured some wine, he gave it to them as a symbol of the blood. And he says, whenever you do this, do this and remember who I am. And that's what we're going to do as a church family today. But before we do that, I would like us just to take 90 seconds and thank him for being who he is and ask him to show us the one true God, that we may be inspired and motivated as a new creation to live the life to which he has called. Church family, when Jesus took the bread and broke it, he told his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. As we take the bread, let's remember how his body was broken for us. Take the bread. family as he grabbed the wine he said this is my blood which is spilled for you so as we take the cup let's remember what he's done for us take the cup the magi traveled great distances and gave great resources because they knew the greatness that was in front of them. If we are to move from a theoretical faith to a faith that a lost world sees in our feet and in our hands, then we too must experience and know the greatness of the living God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that even when we don't love, you do. We thank you that you will not hold our wrongdoings against us, but when we stand before you, you will see only the perfection that is your son. Let us be a church where people with past are comfortable being because we are focused on you and your love and your grace 
and your power and your awesomeness and your glory and not so concerned with image that we hold things against ourselves and against other people that you have wiped away. We ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see you as you actually are, not as who we wish you were or not as we intend you to be, that we discard our misconceptions and because of your great love are compelled to live a life of worship. We ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and in your son's name, amen.